You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Psalm 32. Guests, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, we're excited uh, this morning that we can praise God the same way we just did, but do it through His Word and through the Lord's Supper. Uh, you'll notice that uh, the Lord's Supper is here on the table for the first time since COVID. And what we're going to do, we're going to give you directions for that this morning as a response uh, to the sermon. And uh, as you uh, are turning to Psalm 32, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, a black one where you can turn to page 487 and follow along with us. If you're a guest, we normally go through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say uh, and not what I have to say. And so we walk through books of the Bible together this summer. We're walking through 11 Psalms associated with how we uh, pray together uh, each uh, week. As Israel would come, and this would be their songbook and their prayer book. So we've thought about these, kind of organized these uh, through our adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So this morning we come to a Psalm of confession. And... Uh, as, you, as we come this morning and think about confession, I want, you, I want to ask you a couple questions just to think about for just a moment. Does the reality of sin weigh on you? Does it weigh on you? Just the reality that we live in a broken world. What about your own sin? How does your sin weigh on you? It's clear in the Psalms that confession is born out of the of true weight of understanding the depths of our own sin. It's easy for us to look in the world. It's easy for us to look at our neighbor and say, look at their sin. It's a lot harder to look at our sin. I thought of how do we respond when, we, when it comes to our own sin? What is the natural response to sin? Well, if we go all the way back to the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the response to sin was to hide. The first time that God had to ever come to Adam and Eve and ask a question was because they hid from Him because they knew that they had rebelled against Him. Hiding our sin is the natural response in a broken world. When I was uh, probably four or five years old, it was before I had went to school, I was at uh, a preschool. My mom's work had a preschool, and I, we would go while she was at work and, and be there. And so one time, uh, during the day, uh, we played with some blocks, and I took one of the light blue blocks uh, home with me. Uh, I liked it, uh, light blue. It foreshadowed that Carolina is always better than NC State or Duke. But, um, so I took it home with me, and I was playing with it. My dad said, where would you get that? And uh, I kind of, I don't remember what I said, but what I knew wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't my block to have. My dad knew that. And so my dad told me to take it back. And not only did he tell me to take it back, he didn't let me take it back in silence. I could have just come back the next day, you know, and dropped it in the bucket, not said a word, right? But my dad said, no, you're going you're gonna to tell your teacher that you took this. I don't remember uh, exactly how that interaction went. I just know that even... 
at a young age, and when my, when my dad saw me with this block, he made me go back. And he made me tell the teacher that I took that block. My dad didn't just want me to recognize my, what was going on. He wanted me to see what I had done was wrong and then to take responsibility for it. That's exactly what God wants. But God wants to, for us to take responsibility so that He could show His kindness and His mercy and His grace. That's why. God doesn't want to hold our sin over our heads. He wants to show you how great and merciful He actually is. Because He knows that sin will destroy us. He knows that sin breaks apart families and relationships and all kinds of things in our world. And He wants you to take responsibility for your sin so that He can show you a better way. It's exactly what we see here in Psalm 32. God plans to use broken people who take responsibility for their sin and show the world that they are different. To show the world that something has changed in these people. So what if we get this wrong? What happens when, when the church gets this wrong? The church looks like hypocrites. And we've probably experienced, you've probably experienced that at some level. People become apathetic to their own sin. We don't confess it anymore because we don't see the weight of it anymore. We become prideful to think that we don't sin or that our sin is somehow better than someone else's. And in the end, what happens when we don't confess our sin, we become people isolated. We can come every week for years and sit in these pews and we can come and we can eat lunch together, but if we never confess sin together, we will be isolated from one another because it's a facade. And God says there's something better. Because if we confess our sins to Him and to each other, then the church is an authentic community of people who care for one another. Where there's deep relationships here, not because I know this sin about somebody else, but because they know my sin and I know theirs. And we are challenging and encouraging each other to love Jesus better by confessing that sin. It builds a culture of the gospel in which we say that Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. And the things that buy for our attention, we help each other keep our focus on Jesus. That's what Psalm 32 is about. And so as we walk through the text, here's, here's what you're going to see. David, he recounts the joy of forgiveness through confessing sin to God. We don't come to this passage today burdened by confession, which is very easy for us to do. Instead, if you're a disciple today, if you love Jesus, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, here's what, here's what you need to know. We find joy, the joy of forgiveness personally and communally through confessing our sin. The psalm, this psalm particularly, shows us the end result of confession. Often we have a DEFCON 3 approach to confession, don't we? We're going to hold it in. We're going to lock all the doors. We're going to all the metal doors come down over our hearts and we're not going to let anybody in until, are we? But, but David here says if we confess our sins, we believe the opposite of what David says. 
that no one will forgive us, that, that people will think differently about us, we'll be judged, we'll be shunned, we'll be shamed. But this isn't the case in a gospel-changed community. This isn't the case for people who love Jesus. Why? Because we know the depths at which our God went to save us. And if He has saved us and offered us forgiveness, then it should be easy for us to offer forgiveness to each other. And now, as we jump in here to Psalm 1, we haven't talked much about those, those little words at the top of the Psalms. They're descriptions of the Psalms. And so, if you look there at the top, before verse 1, it says this, a Psalm of David, a mascal. This word mascal means instruction. David is not just giving his experience that when he confesses his sin, he experiences the joy of forgiveness. No. He's experienced the joy of forgiveness and he's saying, church, people, God's people, experience this forgiveness through confession. He's instructing us. So look there at verse 1. He says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. Notice here that verse 1 starts off the same way that Psalm 1 verse 1 starts off as we start our series. You may not see it or notice it because of this word joyful, but it's the same word as happy or blessed in Psalm 1. It seems that David wants to connect wisdom, the way of a righteous life, to confession. And David also uses three words for sin. He uses these three words to highlight the egregious nature of the offense that he's committed. And he also uses three words for the actions that God takes. Forgiveness. Literally removing or lifting away. Covered. I mean, he's concealed. Right? He's concealed us from our sin. And he does not charge it. Literally, he reckons with our sin, which implies that he is the one who treats us as righteous. And this is received by faith. And these same words, we see them in other places. We look back at Genesis chapter 15, that this is all received by faith. And it anticipates the Lord's response of a complete forgiveness. But this complete forgiveness only comes to those who are fully confess their sins openly without deceit and without hesitation. This is the joy. And so these two verses, what they do is they kind of give us the main idea of the whole psalm. They give us the, the beginning and the end in these two verses. Confession leads to joy in forgiveness. And so these, they show us the sweet embrace of a merciful God. So how can we find this experience? How can we experience the same thing that David does? So I want to show you three aspects of forgiveness that I think we can experience today in Christ. So, look there, verse 3, number 1. Experience the relief of forgiveness. Experience the relief of forgiveness. Look there, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. So I want you to see here that silent sin leads to heartache. It leads to heartache. At first, it seems that David's unwilling to confess his sins to God. He tries to cover it up. And the silence leads to an inward agony. Notice how he describes it. His bones become brittle. 
and his strength is drained. They're not just external consequences, they're internal consequences as well. There's something going on in his body. Remember back in James, we talked about when we conceal our sin, sin is so powerful that it will cause hardship in us if we do not confess it. It can bring depression and anxiety and stress on our bodies. He uses another metaphor to explain what he means. He talks about like a summer drought this week. I think it was over 100 degrees here in North Carolina, which is not fantastic. And so you can even experience what David's saying here. Like the summer heat outside all day, this is what we are dealing with when we do not confess our sins. But notice that this pain, where it comes from. It comes from your hand. He says it comes from God's hand. Silence does not do us any good because God already knows and it already leads to divine disapproval. There is no escape from God. He already knows. You can't flee a drought. And you will not flee God because He already knows. There is no room. There is nowhere to flee from His judgment. I know you think it's easier to keep on keeping on. Keep your mouth shut. Keep moving forward. But that will not allow us to experience the relief of confession in our lives. And we will not experience joy and forgiveness. There are destructive effects when we keep silent. There are destructive effects when we repress our sin. But that's not the only thing. Look there at verse 5. We're going to see that sincere confession leads to relief. Look there. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave them and forgave my guilt of my sin. For some reason, we're not told why. David... He comes to the end of himself and he he confesses. He acknowledges his hidden sins to God. He no longer conceals them. He He lets God in on what's happening in his heart. He brought it out in the open so that it could be dealt with. When was the last time that you truly confessed sin? And I don't mean, hey, I'm sorry I got angry with you. I'm sorry I, I, I gave some misinformation. When was the last time time that you confessed what's really going on in your heart? I think that question actually shows us how we're growing in maturity. Are we willing to be real and real in here with God and with other people? Husbands, when's the last time that you've confessed your sin to your wife? Wives, when's the last time you've confessed to your husband? Parents, when's the last time that you've confessed your sin to your children? When you treated them harshly or responded in anger? Or your expectations weren't met of them? When was the last time that you truly confessed sin? Because I think that's the marker of a mature disciple. I think that's the marker of someone who understands the glorious forgiveness of our God. Who can confess their sin to God and then confess it to the people that they've hurt. Confess it to people that are involved. The practice of confession will radically shape our families in the gospel. Confession will radically shape our church family if we will do it together. And look there at the end of verse 5. You see the beauty of God's response. God's response is not more punishment. It's not judgment. What is it? It's forgiveness. This forgiveness is complete and even David's guilt has been dealt with. 
Meaning that he no longer must bear the weight of his sin anymore. God has lifted the guilt away. And I want to show you this beautiful idea. This idea of lifting away the guilt of sin. Not just the sin, not just paying for the sin, but lifting away the guilt of it. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain, we know, he kills his brother Abel. And God sentences him and gives him a judgment. And what Cain says was, it's too much for me to bear. My sin is too great for me to bear. It's the same word here in Psalm 32. And then Aaron, in Exodus 28, when, when God has given out the law, he talks about how Aaron, as the priest, is going to shepherd God's people. He talks about Aaron wearing uh, something in their tradition. And what they do is it, it, he bears the guilt of Israel when they come and sacrifice before him. So Aaron, as the priest now, is the one bearing the guilt of the people. And in Numbers 30, we see that the husbands are on the hook. They are the ones bearing the guilt for their wives if they do not complete their vow. So we see this idea of bearing guilt throughout the Old Testament. And I saw this connection while I was studying this week and through some, some theologians and some commentaries. And what we see that through this Old Testament, and particularly the law and the prophets, there's a connection here, both an instruction and an application for us that we see God, He lifts up the guilt of the psalmist here, but He also does it throughout history. This is not something new. God has done this forever. Since we have been His people, He has lifted up the guilt of sin. And in Exodus 34 and Numbers 14 and Micah 7, Yahweh, God, is the one who bears the responsibility of the guilt of Israel. Like the husband of Numbers 30, he assumed the responsibility for the actions of his spouse, whether right or wrong. And for this reason, Isaiah can say that the sins of those who dwell in Jerusalem will literally be lifted up. They will literally be borne by God Himself. God is not here to hold this over you. He is not here to shame you. He's here to lift you out of the guilt that your sin has you in. And of course, we know that the, the most ultimate lifting up of our sin was in Christ. That He was the one who bore our sin and it was accomplished in His work on the cross. Hebrews 9.28 tells that most closely that so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who await Him. And in Paul, in a, in a little different way, a little less a direct way, he says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It is through the Gospel of Jesus Christ that we can fully, completely, and finally experience the relief of forgiveness. How? By confessing our sins, repenting, and trusting in Christ. He will lift your sin away because He has bore the guilt on the cross for you. We can experience this relief. But we only experience it when we confess our sin. But we can also experience the response of forgiveness. Look there at verse 6. We can experience the response of forgiveness. Verse 6 says, Therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. Having laid out his own personal experience, 
David calls now his hearers and readers to apply confession to their own lives. He doesn't just let us walk away. He does this through prayer and praise. So look there, verse 6, you see this prayer of deliverance. He says you need to pray. I want you to focus your attention here on the last word of the first sentence. Immediately. There is a realistic urgency to David's call to prayer. In the light of forgiveness of God compared to the judgment and consequences of silent sin, David calls those who hear him to respond in prayer to seek God and to confess their sins before God. There's no time to wait. There's no reason to hide. Because God is the one offering forgiveness. Do not wait. The time is now, but why is there urgency? Why does David urge this? The floods are coming. God doesn't make Himself available to those who only want Him in difficult times. But for those who pray to Him and confess their sin, He will protect us. The right, a right relationship with God is formed before the hardship ever comes. That we trust Him, we're open to Him, and we fully rely on Him and His character. Nate read from Nehemiah the, 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 a beautiful passage, and Moses says that the same thing. When Moses goes to God, he doesn't go to God based on something that's outside. He bases it on God's character. The loving and kind and gracious, steadfast, full of faithful love. This is the God that we can go to. This is the God that we can pray to. But this relationship is built on times of peace. Before the floods come. Much like the man who built his house on the rock before the storm came. And church, do not be fooled into believing a false gospel that God will spare you from brokenness. The trouble for, for coming in this world, it's coming for the righteous too. And the psalmists know that. It's assumed. They are realists. They know that we live in a broken world. And we are not able to endure these hardships like sickness and suffering and depression if we are not fully open and completely trusting in our forgiving God. The hope here is that there's a firm foundation built on a relationship with God through confession. When we go to God and we confess our sins to Him, what we're saying is, I completely trust you. That with the, the worst parts of me, you still love me. That's the kind of relationship we can have with God. That's the kind of relationship we can trust in so that we can withstand the hardships that come our way. But notice the response. It's not just personal prayer. It's communal praise. Look there at verse 7. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. In the midst of David's appeal to God to pray, he praises God for who he is and how he encourages him through God's people. This is extremely important for us to not miss. David is personally expressing his confidence in God's ability to protect him and to care for him even when he's fully transparent. The encouragement for us is that we trust God even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the circumstances that we've created, even in the midst of our sin that is binding us. We trust Him. 
that he will take care of it. And look there at the end of verse 7. See how God actually protects David. God uses the praise of his people to surround David, to fortify him. God does not raise up walls. He does not build buildings. He does not put David in the care of the military. No, what does he do? He protects David with the joyful shouts of his own people. I want you to pause for just a moment. I want you to reflect with me. Just last week, we as a church, we prayed for Deborah's granddaughter, Callan, because she had to have surgery on her heart. And we prayed together. Look what did we do last Sunday? We prayed all week and we came Sunday and we worshiped together. We praised God together. Think back even a year, a year ago. The mosses were dealing with Abigail's sickness and nobody had answers. We didn't know what was going on. They couldn't tell, the doctors couldn't tell them why she was feeling the way she was feeling. And what did we do? We prayed and we gathered and we worshiped every week. Every week we gathered and we prayed and we sang and we heard from God. This is what we do together. This is what we do in times of difficulty. This is what we do when a broken world is bearing down on us. When we come and praise God, it's communal. You are, when you stand and sing, you're encouraging your brother and sister who is going through something difficult as you stand and you sing those praises to God. For those of you that are rejoicing, you can come and you can sing loudly and you can show your brothers and sisters that God is still good. That God is caring for us in the most difficult of times. Now, place this in the same response. This prayer and this praise in the context of confession. If we are honest with ourselves, we all brought sin into the room this morning. All of us did. The question is, have we confessed it? What do you fear most about confessing your sin? What do we fear most about confessing our sin? That someone finds out, and probably worse, that they think differently about us, they, they may judge us or shame us. That's exactly what the enemy wants for you, to be afraid. To be afraid of your sin, to be afraid of what God is doing in you, he, won't, he does not want you to be fully known. That's not what the enemy wants from us. But when we confess our sin, it gets it out in the open. And the devil can't use it against us anymore. In times of confession and real transparency, God uses the songs of praise of His people to protect us and to surround us. He uses our praise in the midst of knowing that we are sinful people together. Our praises shoot up like a wall of protection so that the enemy's darts do not come in. You will never experience that if you do not confess your sin. We will never experience that if we do not confess our sin. We must have a culture of confession. Have you ever experienced a church shout for joy when someone confessed their sin and received forgiveness in Jesus? It's beautiful. It's amazing. This is something that we must continue to grow in. That we see each other as God sees us. Deeply loved. Deeply broken. And forgiven. 
When we experience the response of God and His people to forgiveness, we can know joy personally and communally. Now, how does David end the psalm? This is the third way for you to experience joy. Experience the righteousness of forgiveness. Look there at verse 8. We're going to see that finding joy through confession can be difficult. Right? This is not easy. I don't come to you and say this is just easy for us to be open and transparent with each other. David helps us through the difficulty by giving us the punchline at the beginning. And then at the end, he shows us how to do it. So verse 8 tells us to receive instructions. Read there with me. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give you counsel. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. There's some discussion on if verse 8 is God talking or David talking. I don't think it matters because if it's God talking, great. If it's David talking, he's inspired by God to do so. So it doesn't matter whether it's God or not. The fact is that we should receive the instruction. Right? We do not have the answers on our own. The psalmists and the psalms make it clear that we need God to reveal Himself to us. We need God to instruct us. We need instruction from God's Word. I love this phrase, and I don't, mean, I, don't, I don't think it's meant to be this way, and I don't mean it this way to be trivial, but if you want to hear God speak, open up the Bible and read it out loud. God, we believe that this is God's Word. And we believe that He has spoken to us. And if you want to know what God thinks, then read the Bible. This is what we come to to be changed and transformed. Not just on Sunday morning, but during the week, together, personally, communally. And then we need counsel from God's people. Again, we can't experience the joy of forgiveness if we don't live in community together. Why do we need God's people and God's word? Because we're sinful. We're broken. We live at our own risk. And so David gives us the image of a, of a horse and a mule, a donkey. They're seen as dull creatures. They do not have the ability to think morally. They don't have a sense to guide them in decision making. And they cannot follow in righteousness. So there's a warning for us. Do not dull your moral or spiritual senses so that you end up resisting God and His will for your life. There are things in this world that are vying for your attention and they're vying to shape you and form you. If we do not give ourselves to knowing who God is with His people, we will eventually dull our senses. and We will not know what God's will for us is, which is what? to receive the joy of forgiveness through confession. So receive instruction. But secondly, receive wisdom. Look there at verse 10. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. As we've seen throughout our study of the Psalms, the wicked will not prosper. They think they will, but they won't. We look at them and we think they will, but they won't. Many pains are coming to the wicked. Those who are dull, those who are foolish these pains are hardships and difficulties and they will not stay on the path of righteousness instead those who trust the lord this is true wisdom they will be secure they will be surrounded by his faithful love 
We must read and study God's Word and watch it, how He cares for us, how He provides for us and strengthens us. Don't come to the Bible just to, to know the material. Come to the Bible so that God knows you better. That you are clear and transparent with Him. We trust God as our supreme source of wisdom. So many things. So many things want you to trust them. And they will leave you lacking. And David says, what, what's the, what, what happens here? What happens when those who trust in the Lord, they're going to be surrounded. Our God is mighty to save. He is, he is full of grace and mercy. His covenant love will not run out will protect us. So, receive instruction and receive wisdom, but also receive joy. Look there at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The psalm ends the same way it started. We should be glad. We should take joy and comfort in the Lord and nothing else. Nothing else. The Lord Yahweh God is for us he has revealed Himself to us through His Word and through the person of Jesus Christ. We can trust Him. And we can shout for joy, can we not? If we all were just to think about where God brought us from, some of us think that we don't have testimonies of beauty and grace. Some of us have forgotten what God did all those years ago. But if we were remembered, if God will put us in that place again, will we not shout together of what God has done. Will we not praise Him for what He's done in Christ? This righteousness is not earned by us, though. The righteous ones here, that, that was not done on our own. It's something that God has done. He's given us grace to trust and surrender Him. We only receive this, this righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so this whole time, I've been talking about confession, I've been talking about being transparent and clear about our sin. And if you're not a believer today, you probably think I'm crazy. As you should. But when the Gospel comes into our lives, it changes us, it shows us something better. It shows us that God is willing to forgive us. And you cannot have that forgiveness if you do not know Jesus Christ. You can't. It's the only way. But Jesus stretched out His arms on the cross willingly so that He would be murdered and killed on the cross. He would be buried so that He could pay for your sin and release you from the guilt of yours. That's the Gospel that we believe. And so if you're not a Christian today, you will not experience the joy of this, but, but He's asking you to. He's calling you to. Receive the joy of forgiveness in Jesus Christ today. My dad, about 25 years ago, I don't think he was a Christian yet, he made me go back and return that block. But he, remember, he didn't make me do it quietly. He made me do it publicly to apologize to my teacher. Here's the deal, church. God plans for the world to see a transformed community through the confessing practice of Christians. God works in His people through their confession in the Gospel. 
Right? We, we look at the world and we see the brokenness and we see the wickedness. We see all the things that are going on. But if we want the world to see what God has really done, then we have to confess our sins together. We have to confess the sins in here, not the sins out there. God will judge the sins out there. He is doing just fine with that, and He will when Jesus returns. But if we don't confess our sin in here, why would the world be any different? Why would the world want what we have? If we want revival to happen in our hearts and in our church, in our community, in the nation, in the world, then we must be a people who confess our sin. Or God is going to keep moving on by. He's going to keep moving on by and we will never see Him work the way that He wants to, the way that He's offering to. Will you experience the joy of forgiveness through confession? And then will you allow that joy, that security in God to impact other people? That's the question today. Pray with me. God, we ask you today, right now, that we would be a people who confess our sin. We need you to help us do this. This is not easy. But it pales in comparison to see who you are when you are gracious and kind and loving. Would we confess our sin to you? God, would you make us the kind of church family that can confesses our sin together, not because we're trying to one-up each other, not because we're trying to hold something over our heads, but because we want to be fully known and fully loved, both by you and your people. May we be a people who have confessed our sin, shouted and praised you for the forgiveness that you provided for that sin, and then we proclaim it to a broken and dying world who is hungry to know truth and to know forgiveness and to know real joy. Would you use us? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.